Hi, my name's Paul Kennedy, and I'm a sport reporter for the ABC, and when I'm not listening to the ABC, I listen to Radio Caram. Tune in and enjoy. Grassroots Hi-Fi is recorded and produced on Bunurong Country and pays its respects to the elders of past, present and emerging. Hello and welcome to episode one of Grassroots Hi-Fi, a show that explores the world of conservation, wildlife and music from home and abroad. My name's Dave Junior Jupp and this show is brought to you by Radio Karam. So the whole idea behind this podcast is a bit of a passion project for me. Uh, I work as a bushland ranger and I love me um, gardening, indigenous habitat gardening in particular and uh, a little bit of veggies and, and fruit growing. And I uh, also do a bit of DJing and a bit of uh, music on top of that as well. I've been collecting vinyl for about uh, 20 years. Um, my collection is pretty random, but uh, I have lots of reggae and lots of soul, lots of funk, lots of eclectic sort of um, music from around the world. So I'm going to try to mix those two passions of mine together and uh, see what happens. I mean... I love talking about conservation and I love talking about music. Um, and I think there are so many interesting subjects in con- conservation and music out there. And I'm hoping to bring in a lot of interesting people to chat with. There's so many amazing stories and uh, I hope to bring them to you. But um, without further ado, I'd like to speak about our first guest. John Arnott is the manager of horticulture at Cranbourne Botanical Gardens which is most noted for the award-winning Australian Garden, a garden that celebrates the biodiverse landscapes of all around Australia. I had a chat to him at the Radio Caram Studios about where it all started and some of the interesting career paths he's taken. John Arnott, thank you so much for being the very first guest of Grassroots Hi-Fi. What's that called? Inaugural. Inaugural, The inaugural um, Grassrooter. Yeah, the (laughs) Grassrooter. So I think I've set the bar pretty high, you know, for the very first show because I've I've heard you on 3CR, seen you on Gardening Australia, and you're the manager of horticulture for Cranbourne Botanic Gardens, one of my favourite places to go to. Yeah, it's pretty great, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. So uh, I think we're going to have a lot of good fun things to talk about, but... uh, before we start talking about, you know, what you do at the Cranbourne Botanic Gardens, I'd yeah. like to sort of like go into a little bit of, uh, you know, what what sort of like got you into horticulture? What did uh, young Johnny sort of, you know, get into you uh, know, that made him want to sort of like have a career in plants? I think it was it was a, probably a combination of nurture and nature, mm-hmm. but there was maybe even in equal parts. I don't know. Um, but I, uh, I was born in Scotland, so yeah. this um, we uh, immigrated out to a, a, a Australia in nineteen sixty six or something yeah. like that. It was yeah. How old were you when you came? I was to four. Australia? 
four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they reckon all your formative years are that first three or four they year, are. years. Yeah. So, you know, genetically, I've, I'm, I'm a Scot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my first memory, my very first memory, in, in and this was in Scotland, was um, we, at the back of our garden, um, at the back of our house, we had a, a, a common uh, which was, you know, like a, a, a communal place, yeah. green space. Yeah. And um, I can remember this perceived him to be an old bloke uh, with a scythe. A scythe, right. And he was, yeah, like the Grim Reaper type. Like the Grim yeah. Reaper thing. Yeah. And, and he was uh, mowing the lawn with a scythe. And I can remember the, 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 the swoosh of the tool yeah. and this grass big tall you know maybe meter high grass 800 millimeter tall grass just falling over wow and it was just this precise like it was skilled yeah yeah it be. so that was uh so my first memories of someone gardening wow yeah so you were four when you came to Australia four. What, what suburbs did you sort of like Grow up in Willie and then Frankston. Oh, Frankston. So I'm, I'm a Frankston Fellow boy. Frankston boy. You <laughs> yeah, made it out. Yeah. Yes. Well, I didn't get that far away, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, grew up, grew up in Frankston. And and I, I reckon that was um, also a bit nature because the, the property that um, my folks, uh, that we all lived in, mm-hmm. was this really, really strange-shaped block but it was it was a a, a farm um, it was a farmhouse, right? So the the Frankston in the nineteen I'm assuming nineteen forties or nineteen fifties got built around this 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 farmhouse. Okay. And I reckon there might have been someone at the the person that owned that place in the nineteen twenties or nineteen thirties might have had a mate at the Botanic Gardens. Okay. Who might have snuck a few plants out yeah. and snuck them into the garden, a huge garden. It was yeah. like a, it was like nearly an acre. And there was Morton Bay figs and lemon-scented gums, like a huge ginkgo, uh, liquid ambers. Um, it's really interesting that you can actually remember the names of the plants from something oh, you saw as a child. Oh, my God. I, 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 <laughs> I had this moment recently. I had, I had COVID and it really knocked me around. Like I had fevery and stuff like that, and I can remember waking up in the m- middle of the night, all sweaty and fevery, yeah. and I had to get a pen and paper out because I was four years old, or five years, or six years old, and I was mentally walking around this garden. Wow! <laughs> and I, I actually got the paper out and and drew it as I was walking around, identifying the trees as I went. What? <laughs> like That's it was a little bit. Wow. Uh, it was a bit bizarre. That must but, have been a big fever. Yeah, it was a big fever. <laughs> but that garden is imprinted into my into, yeah. my, into my psyche. Yeah. And you know, I was literally um, back in that garden. Wow. And I could almost sense it in three dimensions. It was extraordinary. That's it was extraordinary. That's incredible. But it was like an arboretum. Yeah. The, the Morton Bay fig was enormous. Yeah. Yeah. You um, remember that? Cause, yeah. yeah um, Massive big trunks and roots on them. Yeah, they're, they're really easy to remember, aren't they? And um, the veggie, the veggie pot, the veggie plots, of course. Yeah. So that's the kind of the the, the nature. Yeah. The, the nurture would, I don't know. It it 
it probably came in a little bit later when yeah. I, when I understood that working with plants was actually something um, that was fulfilling. Yeah. That that I don't know. I, I it's an interesting one. Just you know, big chunk of gives nature. Gives you pace, doesn't it? You uh, yeah, probably absolutely. can't put your finger on it, but it was yeah. something that sort of yeah, it just fulfills you. I can't imagine doing anything else. Yeah. Like, I can't imagine that I could have been a, an accountant or a, a, could have been a muso at yeah. one point. Yeah. That would have been interesting. So do you play any instruments or anything like that? I play that, a or? bit of mandolin. Oh, yeah? Um, but I'm a project player. I, 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 I really should try and play more because I love playing guitar and mandolin. Um, but I need a project in order to get it out yeah. of the case. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but my dad was... Uh, he was a uh, he was a proper musician. Like he yeah. was a professional muser. What did he play? Fiddle. Fiddle. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Old folk music and all that. Folky stuff. Yeah. 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 yeah wow. He was he was probably in Scotland. He was probably a pop star. Yeah. Like it was pretty daggy. It was uh, <laughs> Ian Arnott's country dance band, right. and he, every Sunday night they'd go into the Edinburgh studio and play these Scottish country dance tunes. Yeah. Fiddle tunes. Yeah. And people in halls all over Scotland would dance to the radio. Wow. Extraordinary. That's great. Yeah, yeah. We'll be back with John shortly, but for now, we're going to play some vinyl. This is Melbourne-based Jar Ruckus with their version of David Bowie's Ashes to Ashes. Hello and welcome back. You're listening to Grassroots Hi-Fi. My name's Dave Junior Jupp, and this is brought to you by Radio Karam. The track you just heard then is Dennis Brown with Out in the Rain. That record came out in about 1976, I believe, and it's on Pioneer Records. It's a it's a 45. If you're not sure what a 45 is, it's one of those little records that spins a 45 RPM a minute, also known as 7-inch. The track before then you heard was from a band called Jar Ruckus. They're based in Melbourne, and they did a version of David Bowie's Ashes to Ashes. Um... That's also available on 45, and that's what I played it on. You can get that on Bandcamp as well. Uh, keep your eye out for those guys, because they uh, they run a pretty tight ship with their music. And it sounds pretty good. And I'd say Tony Copper, the vocalist, has got a pretty good voice, just as Dennis Brown does, which is considered probably one of the sweetest voices to come out of Jamaica. Stay tuned, folks, because we're going to be speaking to John again about gorillas, butterflies, and plant evolution in the Southern Hemisphere. So, um, you, you went and studied, uh, obviously, you know, after high school. Uh, did you did you go straight into horticulture, or did you try a few different careers first? Or uh, no, straight into horticulture. Straight into horticulture, um, and uh, probably a little known fact is that I didn't finish high school. Right. I didn't feel like I needed to. Yeah. I just wanted to get an apprenticeship and be a gardener. Yeah. So, so I finished at year 11. Yeah, school was never my, 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 my strong suit yeah. as such. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, no, started as an apprentice gardener at the Melbourne Zoo in 1980. An apprentice gardener? In, in, yeah, in, yeah that, so that was my first gig. Right, yeah. um, as an uh, apprentice gardener, and and that was just really fortunate that I that I 
life's full of those um i don't know opportunities or just moments of fortune yeah and i reckon i've scored a couple yeah, of those sounds like journey. a really good job <laughs> but rolling up and I, and I must admit i did see gardening australia and i saw a a pretty handsome pit uh image of you with your big uh fuzzy hair long hair <laughs> like big hair yes. like, <laughs> like big yeah uh yeah almost um what's the guitarist in queen almost brian may like yes <laughs> uh but that was a that was a, a treat when I, I mean when i started at the zoo it was pretty it was pretty ordinary yeah, it was well. In, probably lot, lots of zoos around that time would have been like, yeah, here's a pen and that's it. And, yeah, uh, yeah. And I understand you started working on the gorilla um, habitat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I, I started doing my apprenticeship at the zoo, um, uh, and and at, at that stage, horticulture was just it was like bedding. Yeah, it was spring and autumn bedding. It had nothing to do with for. Um, the experience of the animals it was like the, mm-hmm. the the zoological garden it was the garden that that was the bit in between all of the cages yeah uh they were they weren't integrated at all and there was um a fellow called david hancocks who said i don't know in 1982 this is actually unacceptable our society doesn't accept that standard of husbandry and and just treatment of animals yeah anymore and he uh, he wrote the master plan for the for the for the zoo that said we need to transform this pretty environmentally barren landscape Mm -hmm. into something which is enriching for the animals and 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 that and that was that that was that shift to naturalistic enclosures so the gorilla enclosure would have just been like what rocks and that was a pit. Fiberglass to look like rocks or something. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. And that's it. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was this concrete pit. Yeah. Uh, and uh, how big? Uh, the size of a small golf green was yeah. was the the physical space that yeah. the, that was actually accessible in the enclosure for them. And there was a climbing tree and a cave, yeah. and but it was a pit. It was a pit enclosure. And the remarkable thing with the gorillas is they went from this pit, um, uh, pit enclosure or enclosures. They were in two or three, and they went into this naturalistic planted exhibit, and it was just the most extraordinary transformation. Yeah. Both from gorilla behaviour and how people were perceiving the animals. So, same five animals went from the environmentally barren pit mm-hmm. into the naturalistic vegetated enclosure people uh, it was year um, year 10 kids uh, and, a, and a decent sample it was a PhD study okay. um, and there was uh, a survey of, of take, kids took a survey of the same animals in the pit enclosure and then four months later different cohort of kids but the same age mm-hmm. were surveyed of you know thoughts about how do you feel about a gorilla yeah in 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 each of those spaces yeah. in the pit enclosure they were angry aggressive dumb ugly <laughs> like um animals yeah 
in the new enclosure, they were gentle, social, endangered. Wow. Same animals. Yeah. But it was the context, the frame, the frame that people were viewing them in actually shifted their perceptions. That's interesting. Of what the critters are and do and think and feel. It was remarkable. So they had a bit of green around them and uh, it it was a little bit like, you know, replicated their, their native habitat. To, to the extent you, that you, you could, saw, you saw a marked response in their yeah. psyche, basically. Well, in 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 this, the 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 psyche of the people that were looking at them, yeah, they they perceived them as different things, yeah, almost like a different species, yeah, crazy, yeah. The gorillas themselves went from spending eighty-five to ninety percent of their day sedentary, mm-hmm. sleeping, yeah, to. Um, in the first instance, it was kind of flipped because they were they were. It was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. That when they the gorillas first went out into the into this vegetated enclosure, they were just walking around this thing, thinking, "Hang on a second, <laughs> am I what, still locked up? What's <laughs> that? <laughs> That's a living tree. Yeah, and I'm standing on living plants. Yeah, and I'm walking through this enclosure which is vast. Yeah, it was extraordinary." Yeah. Um, so yeah, good, the behavioural repertoire within two or three days of the gorillas going into the the naturalistic enclosure, they were breaking down vegetation, stinging it on the ground, and, and sitting on it. They were making oh, day God. nests. The keepers that have worked with these animals for twenty five, thirty years had never seen that behaviour before. It's incredible. So the physical landscape was just allowing the gorillas to behave more like gorillas. Yeah. It was. Pretty special. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. So you, you actually went on and did another project at the zoo, and uh, I believe that was the butterfly enclosure? The butterfly enclosure was a, 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 a extraordinary. For the first time in the history of the, uh, of the zoo, the success of the exhibit was... 100% about the success of horticulture as being able to grow plants. Mm. Um, you know, if you don't have the, 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 the larval food plant for the caterpillars, mm-hmm. you, haven't, you, haven't got a, you haven't got a caterpillar, you haven't it's got a pupa, complex, you haven't got a butterfly, yeah. <laughs> you've got nothing in, flying in the house. Yeah, um, yeah that was, a, that was a, 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 a... Yeah, I think it was pivotal to, to Melbourne Zoo. So did you actually... Um, have a lot of the plants in there that were actually living or did you bring in branches and things like that that might be the food or you know yeah so it it, it, it um so butterflies have got i'm going to say two plant needs mm-hmm. probably more than that but two fundamental plant needs one one is something for them to feed on as flying yeah, adult butterflies so nectar, nectar stuff, yep yeah. yep and the other one is something for their for the next gen something for them to lay their eggs on uh, as larval food plants and caterpillars. We took almost all of the larval food food plants out, and then brought them in in a pot, and it was remarkable. So you bring a larval food plant in, stick it on uh, in a in a pot, butterflies mate, find the food plant, lay their eggs on it, and we take that plant out to the back where we did the breeding. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there was uh, that uh, the the nectar plants, and we and we actually with that density of butterflies, we couldn't couldn't actually 
provide enough nectar, but we had um, whole polyhouses full of uh, nectar plants. And it was one of the most glorious things, bringing a a trolley of these flowering nectar plants in um, that you place around the the butterfly house. But before you could, like you were actually trying to push push away the butterflies in order to be able to pick up these plants. And and it was very special. Yeah. Very yeah. special. It must have. There must have been a lot of job satisfaction when you when you go into there and you see a little uh, cocoon or, or chrysalis or something like that, and it's like, yes, it, crazy stuff. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, the, the, I, I actually left the zoo at the end of my apprenticeship. Yeah. Travelled overseas. Went to Scotland. Um, spent nine months overseas, oh, yeah. and when I came back to Melbourne, the um, the uh, the manager of horticulture at the time said, hey, do you want to come back? And I said, mm, I'm not so sure. And he said, well, we've got this project, the Butterfly House project. You might just want to come and have a look. And I thought, oh, no, I'm not so sure. I, I nearly walked away from the, that opportunity, which was probably so stupid, um, but nearly did. Um, but he said, just come in and have a look. And I've, I've come in and had a look, had a look at the the. the butterfly house and i saw exactly that i saw a butterfly coming down laying an egg onto a plant that i didn't even know it was some um east coast rainforest thing and then the these caterpillars and the pupa and and i actually looked into a box and saw a butterfly emerging out of out of its pupa case and i was smitten yeah i was in yeah there was no way i wasn't going to say yes to that opportunity yeah. but i nearly did so um, when you finished up there, where was where'd you go from there? Did you uh, did you did you did you take on any projects sort of like? I went to Geelong. Oh yeah, yeah. I travelled down the Princess Highway to to Geelong at the Geelong Botanic Gardens. Yeah, yeah. I've never been there. Before. Oh, what a great garden! Yeah, what a what a great garden! It's the fourth oldest botanic garden in. Australia. Wow. When, when was that started? Uh, 1856. Wow. So it went Hobart, Sydney, Melbourne, Geelong. Okay. Sorry, Sydney, Hobart, Melbourne, Geelong, but fourth oldest. Yeah. Um, and look, it really wasn't, it, it, it was called the Geelong Botanic Garden, but it was really at the time just being managed like a park. Mm-hmm. Um. And it was one of those, just again, one of those be in the right place at the right time opportunities because mm-hmm. the, effectively the um, council had secured a, a nice bit of funding to throw out the Botanic Gardens and double the size of it. So there was this new entrance called the 21st Century Garden. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, that, that was, again, a little bit transformational. When did you do the uh, the twenty first century garden? Two thousand and two. That opened, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which so, which so makes it twenty years old. Yeah, right. yeah time goes. <laughs> and that was on the back of twenty years at the zoo. I'm, I'm at this stage. I'm even then. I've just, I'm, you know, I'm starting to clock up a few k's. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah, it can only be a good thing. So. The 21st Century Garden, what was the uh, concept behind that? It was right in the middle of that millennium drought. Yeah. Um, and it was all about low water gardening. Yeah. So, you know, like a sustainable garden. Yeah. Which, which I mean, that's what it was. It was, it was an attempt to um, 
display a, a whole range of different approaches to sustainable gardening. Yeah. Um, from everything from growing local plants, mm-hmm. the local flora to the Geelong region. Mm-hmm. Um, and Geelong's pretty special. It's got uh, uh, over 13, 1,300 indigenous plant species associated with the, 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 the flora of the city of Greater Geelong. Really? Yeah, it's super biodiverse. Goes from the grassy plains yeah. into some of the woodlands and you know some of the coastal wetlands and uh, yeah yeah no it's it's full of uh, uh, interesting EVCs yeah. which are driving species diversity. Mm-hmm. So uh, an incredible indigenous plant palette to work with. Yeah, but it was also about uh, uh, gardening with cacti and succulents and right, yeah. Um, yeah. you know some of those. Which, which is, yeah, technically a really good idea if you don't want to use water. But yeah. it's, uh, you know, me being an indigenous habitat gardener. An indigifile? Yeah, an indigifile. I'm a bit biased. <laughs> yeah, you know, fair enough. Things like that. <laughs> no, fair enough. But, you know, you know, horses for horses. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Like, you know, yeah. it all serves the same purpose. Yeah. Yeah, cacti and succulents are still, whilst we created a garden that featured them, at least yeah. in part, yeah, uh, there was no knock-on. I, I yeah, left I'm not a big fan. Yeah, <laughs> they're prickly. <laughs> they're, 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 they hurt yeah, a lot. They're, they're prickly. They hurt. <laughs> um, but interestingly, like um, oh, if you go back in geological times, the the, the great Gondwanan supercontinent, um, South America, South Africa, um, and Australia, all dried out we have no cacti in it's our flora interesting isn't it yeah three percent of our, our native flora yeah is succulent wow you go to south africa and it's nearly 20 percent. yeah you go to the deserts of central america yeah and it's 90 percent yeah, succulents that's really so, interesting so our flora just before. our flora just didn't adapt there was no parallel evolution. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we have no cacti and yeah. very few succulents in, yeah. in the Australian flora. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point now, think about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there's not really many, is there? No, and similarly, no very, very few deciduous trees in the Australian flora. Is there indi- uh, deciduous trees in South Africa and yeah. South America, yes. is there? A that's, bounty of that's them. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's really yeah. interesting. What the theory is that um, when Australia dried, it dried. Um, it's not about average rain, rainfall. Um, so a desert, you know, by definition, has a limited amount of rain. Mm-hmm. But deserts in South Africa and South America get regular rain. Yeah. In Australia. Um, you can go years and years and years and years without any rain. Yeah. Um, so whilst they're all arid environments, one is our environment, our arid inland, is um, just so variable in its rainfall. Mm-hmm. And if you're deciduous and you haven't got any leaves and it starts to rain, you can't take advantage of that. So that's why we have very few deciduous plants. Because it would be a disadvantage if you if you're dormant, 
yeah. at the time when the when you've got the resources available. Interesting, yeah. yeah. Always ready to yeah, take it up. Yep. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting stuff. Very interesting indeed. But for now, we're going to take a break and play some soul music. This is Al Green with I Can't Get Next to You. Stevie Wonder, what an absolute legend. The name of that track is Living for the City, and that was released back in 1973, and that comes via a 45 from Tamla Records. Uh, that actually featured on his record of 1973 in the Inversions album. He played every instrument in it, including drums and clapping. He had a bit of help from Malcolm Cecil and uh, Robert uh, Majuloff, who was some kind of synth wizards back then. Um, if you look at the clip, you can see them uh, in the background. They've got like a whole like, spaceship type thing going on, pulling plugs and p- pressing switches. Um, apparently they rolled him up as much as they could to try to get his voice as husky as they could for the recording of that album. And it sure did come out really, really nice. It's one of my favourite soul songs. And... Uh, it's really, if you listen to the actual music, a lot of it's actually synth, so it's an actually a really good song, and I love Stevie Wonder. Before that, you heard from Al Green with I Can't Get Next to You Girl, and that features off his album, Al Green Gets Next to You, which in my opinion was one of his best albums, and Al Green is also up there as one of my favourite soul singers of all time. Stay tuned because we're going to be chatting to John again for a little bit more. Um, unfortunately, with this interview, it was cut a little bit short and uh, we only really got into the guts of what I really wanted to talk about was uh, Cranbourne Botanic Gardens and a lot of the stuff that's local to us out here in Carrum and, uh, and Indigenous Gardening. But uh, we'll get back. We'll get him back into the studio and we'll have a, another chat with him because uh, time went so fast because we were having so much fun chatting as you can tell by the recording but um we've got about another 15 minutes of the show to go it is an hour show and uh i've got some more tunes that i want to give a spin as well so uh keep it locked folks you're listening to radio carom and this is grassroots hi-fi so I believe that you went to Royal Botanic Gardens after that, was it? Yes. How long ago? Oh, was well, I actually bounced around a little bit. I had three, four jobs in nine months at one point. I spent some yeah. time at the city of Melbourne, which oh, yeah. was great. I loved it. Spent some time at uh, Wilson Botanic Park in Berwick. Okay. But yeah, in terms of they were they were almost just um, so that's, space fillers. So that's run by the Australian Plant Society. Plant Society of they, they've actually just moved out. Right. They've, they've they've set up in Pakenham at the Deep Creek Reserve. Okay, which is a really nice one. A great Indigenous plant nursery. Yeah, there. yeah. Um, but yeah, Wilson Park's been there for a, a little while. It's a, it's another one of our great public gardens yeah. in in. But yeah, yeah, they were they were sort of almost um, when the opportunity came up to uh, have throw Manhattan uh, in, in the ring for Cranbourne. That was yeah, I threw Manhattan. <laughs> so how long ago was that? Fifteen years. Fifteen years ago. Yeah. So 
I believe it was established in 1970 as Cranbourne Gardens, mm-hmm. but that was more of a research type thing, wasn't it? It was more yeah. a nursery and, you know, plant dynamics and, you know, a place for, you know, threatened uh, plants to... And, and, and critters. And critters as well. Yes. Yeah. it was... Uh, Back then, you know, there was probably a lot of bandicoots around uh, yeah. suburban Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, it's been an island now, isn't it? Very much so, yeah. yeah. So the Cranbourne Gardens, for the f- in the f- it was... So the idea for the Cranbourne Gardens actually goes way back to post-war Melbourne. Yeah? Yeah. Um, post-war Melbourne, there was this... Um, I don't know, there was a... a, a a bit of nat- nationalistic pride um, that came through, mm-hmm. and the question as a, a society, we said, you know, we've got this amazing flora, but we're, we're not gardening with it. We're not. Yeah. We don't grow these things. Yeah. I mean, there were a few things: figs and I don't know, flame trees, and yeah. uh, you know, a few potter cups. Big structural park trees. We yeah. grew. We grew those, but in terms of you know, grevilleas and banksias and native grasses and wildflowers. Yeah. They were invisible yeah. to, to, to horticulture. Yeah. They were invisible to the gardener. Uh, and wasn't it, it was around the 70s that it was the first sort of like native boom, wasn't it? Like people yeah. actually really started to like our, our native flora. plants for yeah, the yeah. first time, wasn't it? And they were yeah, kind so. of bush gardens. They were, they were um, yeah, I think so. Yeah, which is, you know, it's interesting just in, in and of itself that that with such a remarkable, beautiful flora that we just turned our back on it. Yeah, yeah. it was somehow inferior or it something still that you didn't. Probably really colonial mindset. Yes, sort of, you know, back then. Yes, and, uh, yeah. The thing they used to call the Australian, the Great Australian Cringe, which I don't think exists anymore, but you know, perhaps that was perhaps it was Harvard as well. It, it was in, in, in play. Yeah, and maybe it was just about the familiarity in the first instance of. Um, of creating European style of landscapes, but yeah. that that said, that's the 1850s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Yeah. We, we gardened more like America for 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 so long. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really interesting point because I remember as a young child, a lot of the gardens looked like Mexican gardens. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they had the scoria and yeah. the crazy pave yeah, and, yeah. and all those. Practices that now live in our bushland. Yes, prickly pears came from that time, didn't they? The kind of the cordy line and the white pebbles. Yeah, that, I remember. Uh, I remember. I went to Mexico City uh, on a holiday once, and I thought, "This looks like 1970s Australia." A lot of it. <laughs> yes. You know, along the roads, they had those crazy paved barriers and all that. Yep. And, yeah, yep. It was. Uh, yep. Yeah. It's uh, interesting. You're right. Isn't it? So we um, we were late adopters. Uh, to to maybe even value our, our, our flora, mm-hmm. um, and that's you know that's one of the um, uh, that's one of the things that, that gets me out of bed in the morning is the opportunity to actually help people see our indigenous and, and native flora mm. through um, maybe different eyes or. Or maybe even just to see it in the first instance. Yeah. I yeah. Think, yeah. It's a, it's a, you know, a lot of people probably don't really understand how great our flora is. Yeah. 
because you know, they wouldn't know the difference between what's what. No, and what no. grows here and what grows in Western Australia and yeah. what grows around the world. So, yeah, it's a, it's a really... Yeah, it's a really good thing to sort of be motivated by, isn't it? And, you know, here we are in um, Karam. Yeah. The great Karam Karam Swamp. Yes. You know, I probably didn't real I, I I probably didn't realise just how significant it was and is mm-hmm. until quite recently. Yeah. It yeah. was thought to be more more biodiverse than Kakadu. I've heard that, yeah. Yeah. It's remarkable. Yeah, well it's a, it's amazing what, you know, a bit of water can do, you know. If you get water to settle on land. Yeah, yeah. You know, everything takes off, doesn't it? And a yeah. big catchment when you think it the Dandelion Creek picks up the southern side, eastern side of the um Dandenongs mm-hmm. and funnels it into this bowl. Yeah. Um you've got the Umemorin Creek that picks up, you know, all of that Cardinia catchment and and then the sort of the Morty and the Cananook. Yeah. And and it was a confluence of all of those those um those water sources yeah would have been incredible yeah we got like little clues you know if you ill race road you know ill race road obviously you know there would have been uh eel yeah. traps there yeah. historically yeah you know way before and that's i guess at the the head head end of the canalook that's where the canalook would have met the caram caram yeah with was the eel race yeah Fresh water, salty water, brackish water, that confluence. Thank you so much for tuning in to the first episode of Grassroots Hi-Fi. I hope you've had as much fun as I have because I've had a lot of fun myself. We've got about enough time for another song. Um, Since we were talking about Mexican gardening before, this is the first song that came to mind. The song is called The Mexican, and it's from a band called Babe Roof. And despite their uh, American-sounding name, they're actually from England. And uh, this this actual song was actually recorded back in 1972 in Abbey Road Studios and featured on their first studio album, uh, First Bass. Um, it, it became a bit of a, uh, a hit in um, disco circles and also hip-hop and most notably was um played by the one and only grandmaster flash and it actually featured on a compilation of his from uh, 2002 the the official adventures of grandmaster flash it's an actual banger and it's one of those songs that i think i will be able to listen to over and over and over and never get sick of because it is sweet I'm going to have to let you listen to it, though. You've been listening to Grassroots Hi-Fi. Thank you. See you next time. Hi, everybody. This is Wit from Spiderbait. When I'm passing through Karam, aside from slowing down to 50 kilometres an hour and reminisces about doing the Eel Race Road Rumba or the Watley Street Wiggle, I like to tune in to Radio Karam and get down with the good vibes.